give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by, by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children's or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. A number of years ago, I, uh, after the service, a guy came up to me and he said, Hey, can you meet with me in, my, in uh, your office? I said, Absolutely. And so we went to my office a few days later and he brought his wife. He'd only been married for, I think, two years. And he said to me, This is how he began. He said, I have a problem with greed, I have a problem with money. And, and he told me the story that when he was a little bit younger, he had been doing college ministry. He was making peanuts back then. And at the age of 27, he was making 300K a year. That was 12 years ago. It's even worth more now. 300K a year in the financial industry. And he said, he said to me, it's costing me everything. He says, my, my, my wife is on the brink of leaving me. She was there. She confirmed everything. And he had his face buried in his hands. And he said, I don't, I, he was stressed. It was just a ball of anxiety. He's like, I, I know where I'm headed. And I know the danger that it is. Uh, but I just feel like I can't let go. And so I, I spent some time just counseling with him, just uh, saying, look, what does work-life balance look like? And why? And what are your priorities? And how can you care for your wife during this time and so forth? And so by the end of our time together, he was greatly encouraged. I was too. And then he left my office. And I never saw him again. We're doing a series right now called Glittering Vices. And this is a series on the seven deadly sins, as they were called by some of the ancient fathers and mothers of the church. And what we're doing in this series, if you're brand new, you wouldn't know this, but one of the things that we've been talking about is how do you marry a vice to a virtue, a sin to, to the goodness, the righteousness. And so we said that, hey, preaching that's just to- focused on sin is not very hopeful, but preaching that's just focused on the virtue, what we want to hear in our lives It's not very helpful because it's not reality. And so we need hopeful and helpful vice and virtue together. And today we're looking at greed. And I think about this story. There's two reasons why I told you that story to start with. Number one, it sounds a lot like this passage, doesn't it? But do you know the other reason why I shared that with you? Because in 17 years of pastoral ministry, that's the only time anyone's ever come to my office to talk about greed. And there's a reason for that. We're going to talk about this this morning. Jesus says that if you want to follow me, I have to be your everything. 
And he looks to the thing that mattered the most to this man. And I wonder, what is it that, what is that for you this morning? Is it this subject? Is it something else in the series? But whatever it is, he says, I must have everything. And so this morning, here's what we're going to do as we look at greed specifically. It won't be a surprise to some of you that this is part of the seven deadly sins. And certainly, pun intended, there's a wealth of teaching in this passage, not just on money, by the way. But as we look at this passage, three things. First, we need to see the danger of greed. It's hidden. Number two, the heart of greed. What's at the root of it? Then finally, the virtue, which is generosity. How do we marry ourselves to generosity in such a way that brings joy back to our lives in the places where joy has been taken from us? So first, we're going to look at the danger of greed. Let's look back at verse 17 where everything is kicked off. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is on his way, the journey to Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified. And as he begins that journey, this this young man, this this very wealthy, he's called the rich young ruler in some of the passages. And so in this passage, this young man is eager. He's full of energy and thirst and hunger. And so he basically throws himself down, almost prostrate, before Jesus. And he asks, like, the ultimate question, the one question that, that Jesus has been waiting for someone to ask him, and no one has asked him so far. And he's about to go to Jerusalem, and it's, man, what do I do to have eternal life? Like, what does it take? What, what, what am I missing? That sort of thing. And so you talk about a guy who's eager to be a follower of Jesus. Let me tell you, this is the guy you want in your life, okay? You would love to be with this guy. This guy is eager for the things of God, And I want you to notice something. A few verses later, Jesus says, looking at him, he loved him. You know how many times that occurs in the Gospels? Zero, apart from this passage. This is a guy who is so genuine, so eager, so thirsty and hungry, that Jesus, to a certain degree, was impressed. And you would be too. So right about now, you're asking this question perhaps. If this dude is that good, why is this a sermon on greed? Here's why. Most of us in here, when we think about greed, we have a certain uh, caricature, let's call it. So some of you know this. I've been teaching the fellows class. And so this past week, we talked about fellowship of the ring, didn't we? And we talked about how it relates to power and corruption in society. And so we had this fascinating conversation for about an hour and a half about how it impacts our lives. And, of course, Lord of the Rings is a famous movie for a lot of different reasons. But, of course, what is it about? It's about one ring to rule them all. And when you think about greed, I mean, you see it so easily in the movie, don't you? Right? You see the character of Gollum, my precious, right? And then, of course, you see, of course, Sauron himself, the, the eye. And he, he has to have the ring in order to have power. And he has to have power in order to control. And he's willing to destroy all that is good and righteous for the sake of his own name, for his glory, his own acquisition. That's greed, typically how we think about it. Or, or right now, you know, if you're into athletics right now, you know, people are getting ready for their contracts for the pro football season. You know, they're signing contracts for $250 million, and they're holding out for an extra $5 million. You know, and so you're saying to yourself, my gosh, come on, really? Seriously? An extra few million when you're already making two fifty? Um, seriously? And so when we think about greed, right, we think about greed in that way. We think about what is obvious. But here... I want you to hear this. That is not what's typical. What is typical is this for us because it's hidden. 
And what Jesus does is he shows them, shows him where it's hidden in his life. It begins right away in verses 18 through 20, right after he says, teacher, good teacher. I mean, he's like, you're the rabbi of rabbis. Like, tell me, what must I do? And Jesus has them, right? He says, all right, here's what you're going to do. Tell me about how you do with the commandments. How you do with adultery and murder and, and so forth. And are you keeping these? And, and the man's like, yes. And so he's already eager. And now he's even more eager because he's like, I'm doing it. Yes, he's about to tell me that I'm in. I'm in. I'm in the kingdom, that sort of thing. He says, there's one thing that you lack. Just one thing, right? Sell all that you have and give it to the poor, right? And here's what I want you to see in there. This is what is more typical because something I, I should have said, and let me say it now, back in Matthew 5 through 7, it's called Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest sermon that, that uh, Jesus preached evidently, or at least captured by the gospel writers. And one place in there, in chapter 5, it says, watch out for greed. Now, just a few verses later, Jesus talks about some of these very commandments that he talks about here. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Now, why, when he talks about greed, does he say, watch out, but he doesn't do that for adultery? Well, the answer is pretty obvious, I think. If you're stepping out on your wife, you know, it's not like you say, oh, I, I didn't realize that wasn't my wife. And bad. Oh, that, that caught me off guard. Uh, what am I doing? No, you know it, right? Same thing with murder. You know when it's happening, but not with greed. With greed, Jesus has to take the extra step to say, watch out. Have your eyes wide open in ways that perhaps you wouldn't with, with more, quote-unquote, obvious sins, if you will. I think that's the reason why people have not come to my office. It isn't because most people are just sort of you know, hanging out and saying, I, I know I have this problem, and I don't really want to go talk with Mike or Scott or another pastor about it. No, I think for most of us, we have no idea it's a problem, myself included. So I want you to hear that. Like, I think that's the reason why, because it's so hidden for us. So there are two things I want you to see about the danger. That's the first one, is that we can't see it. It's sort of like the, the carbon monoxide detectors I mentioned last week. It's a colorless, odorless. You can't see it, of course, all those things. And so you need something to tell you, watch out. You need something to say, you're in danger. And I think part of what makes greed so hard for us to identify is because we so readily identify in other people. And if your life is anything like mine, there's always someone who socioeconomically has more than you. There's always someone that you can point to and say, well, glad I'm not like them. I'm certainly glad that I've not gone down that road with money or with those sort of material possessions. Um, I'm not like that. It's so much easier to see greed is what someone else is struggling with. And yet I think all of us, this is our story, is acquisition, especially in a Western culture like ours. And it leads to the second thing here. Not only can you not see it, therefore it's dangerous because that's the most dangerous poison of all. But secondly, it enslaves us. Say, well, how does it enslave? There's a great commercial during the Super Bowl. Uh, and so for those of you who saw the Super Bowl, you, you'll probably remember it. It's my favorite commercial, one of my favorite commercials in the last several Super Bowls. But it was Ewan McGregor. So the great actor, Ewan McGregor. And it's a commercial where, where he begins, he's walking through the back lot of a Hollywood studio where they're filming. And they make it very apparent in the commercial that it's all the iconic commercials of the Super Bowl. Clydesdales with little dogs equals Bud Light, right? Or, you know, 
you know, they're, they're dressed up as soldiers, right? The Bud Light commercials more recently, those sorts of things. And the thin TVs, you know, the Lexus uh, to remember, you know, December to remember kind of thing like that, like all these different cars, smartphones, like this is the commercial. And so as he takes you through the back lot where all these commercials are being filmed as he's speaking, he says this, he says, stuff, we love stuff. And he goes on to say this, he says, no one wishes that they'd gotten a um, sportier SUV, probably, a thinner TV, a smarter smartphone. He says, instead, what? He says, towards the end of the commercial, he says, do you think any of us will look back and regret the things we didn't buy? And then he pushes the door out of the back lot of this big warehouse room and out into the, uh, a beach. It's a paradise. Suddenly you're in the middle of this, what looks like a tropical vacation. He says, or the experiences that we didn't have. It's an Expedia.com commercial. Now, here's the reality. Expedia doesn't want you to know that you can also be greedy for tourism. Right? But at least, though, I like the point that it's making. None of us, as we get older, none of us are saying, gosh, I just wish I had just a, a better iPhone when I was, you know, 50 years ago. Right? Back in 2015. Right? No, you're not going to have that conversation. You're going to have that thought. You're not going to have those regrets. Now, maybe it's true about places in the world to travel to. I don't know. But, but what I do know is this, that, that there's something true to that. And here's the reason why that's important. How does that relate to the slavery? See, you will either possess your possessions or they will possess you. And the more stuff, that you more value you place into acquisition of stuff, of things, the more you become reliant upon them for meaning, value, and purpose. It's an axiom that's always true. The more stuff that you have, the more, of course, you have to spend more stuff in order to protect that stuff, in order to value that stuff, right? And so I think that's part of what he's getting at here. There's a bit of a paradox that the more you possess, the more it possesses you. And I love what Martin Luther said because I think he gets to the rub of it, of how it enslaves us. Martin Luther said, no one breaks the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me, without breaking all the other commandments as well. All the other commandments flow out of the first one, he's just saying. Say, what do you mean by that, Scott? Well, let me give you an example. There's a movie that came out a long, long time ago called The Field. It was an Irish film, which means by definition, it's sad and sorrowful. And it's about this, this tenant farmer who for generations, his family has been tending to the land. And, and more than anything else, he wishes that he could have the land for his own, that he could own it. And it's, it's become his everything. And he finds out one day that the widow who she actually owns the land, she's going to sell the land. She's putting it up for auction. It's going to be bid upon. So he begins to bid, but he's bidding against an American developer who comes to Ireland and wants the property to develop a hydroelectric power plant. And he doesn't have the capital and the means to, to outbid this American. And so he pleads with the American, please, you know. And so the whole film is about this whole process. Again, it's sorrowful. It's depressing quite often. And towards the very end of the film, they're outside in front of this waterfall that will be dammed by, by this American if he outbids. And he has all the money. He's certainly going to do it. And so, so as the... As the conversation progresses, he gets angrier and angrier with this American who will not budge an inch. And finally, in an act of rage, he murders the American. That's what Luther was talking about. You break the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. For him, it was like, I have to have the land. I have to have the land at all costs. And it led literally in the film, at least, which is based on the play, 
to a murder. I think that's what actually greed happens. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. And something else becomes ultimate. Some other aspect of how we acquire meaning and value and identity, status in our lives, right? And I don't know what it might be for you, but for a lot of us, and for myself included at times, it is status. It is the things that I have. It's the neighborhood in which I live. It's where I used to live. It's the work that I do, right? It's the industry that I'm in. Who knows what it might be? But there's a sense that status brings us identity. And so it isn't just stuff like Ewan McGregor was talking about. It's not just that stuff, but it's also the titles, right? It's the other acquisitions that you can't physically put a finger on. And pretty quickly what you find out is that you have to have those things. That means you're enslaved. It means you're possessed, if you will, right? And so... If you're saying, man, okay, that does sound a little familiar suddenly. Now I can begin to see it a little more clearly. Okay, Scott, what, what's driving it for me? Okay, and the answer is the second thing I want to talk about, and that's the heart of greed. And so, so what Jesus does, beginning in verse 21, is he begins to talk about, about what this actually looks like. I want to read to you verses 21 and 22 again. He says this, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The end of verse 21, Jesus says, okay, you're so close to the kingdom. There's just one thing lacking for you. And listen, rich young ruler, I've got a, a treasure that will put your treasure It'll pale by comparison. It's peanuts compared to what I've got for you here. And so I just need you to do one thing. That's it. One thing to reflect that. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, again, I must be your highest priority. I must be your ultimate love, your ultimate attachment. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus goes after the one thing that holds him back. I think that's what Jesus does for us. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, I think what the Holy Spirit does is he goes after the one thing. And, and, and why? Because that's the hardest thing to give up, right? And again, it, you may be saying, as I've said this before, you might say, well, greed's not really my issue. Okay. And like I said before, just come back next week. And that'll probably be that issue. There's something along the way. But for those of us who say, oh my gosh, I do see this in myself. Look, he's going after the one thing because he loves you that much. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He says, I have to go after that one thing. I love you too much to allow you to, to hold something back because you have no idea the misery, the isolation, the lack of status, true status, that's causing you. And so here's the heart of it. The heart of it is attachment. That's an important word, attachment, this morning. In counseling, I was, some of you know I was trained as a counselor, and uh, attachment theory talks about, about our most important and valuable attachments, mom especially, in those first couple years of life. It's incredibly important. Attachment is integral to, to what it means to have identity as a human being. And what Jesus is saying here is like, you were made in my image, the image of God. And so I want you to be rightfully, rightly attached. But what is happening is that he's attaching himself to something that corrodes. His wealth could not last. He could not take his wealth into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is helping him to try or trying to help him understand what does it look like. The ancients, when they included this in the list of the seven deadly sins, they didn't use the word greed. They used the word avarice. So avarice is actually a word that we don't use today very much, but it's actually the word that we used prior to greed. 
And it comes from the Latin avare. It means to crave. And so what avarice or greed is, is an over-attachment to a good thing. I want you to hear this. Being wealthy is not a sin. By no means. There have been remarkable believers, past, present, and there will be in the future, who leverage their wealth for the kingdom in some beautiful ways. The issue is not wealth at all. The issue is our attitude towards wealth. You see, again, all of us in here, to a certain degree, are wealthy. You might say say to yourself, well, no, it's, it's, it's that next socioeconomic status group. No, we're wealthy by the world standards easily. We are so wealthy in the top percentage of the percentage globally speaking. And so it's, so it's not about being wealthy, okay? You're already there, okay? You can rest, relax. So that's not the issue. The issue is the attitude of our hearts. And so what is it that's, that's driving that, that attitude? Well, he says avarice here. And the reason why I say it's an overtaxing, remember what I said, that, that either Jesus will be supreme or something else will be. You know what that is? That's religion. Jesus will either be the center of our religion or something else will be. I want to read you a quote. This is from a retail analyst uh, regarding our economy. He said this, Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. What is he doing? Right there on the nose of it, right? Making it obvious. Religion. Ritual. Spiritual. See, what happens is that when we place the material in front of the spiritual, we make the material spiritual. That's how that works, because we're spiritual beings. We can't help. And so if spiritual is not the priority, then we, the material becomes spiritual, because we live in a spiritual world, we are spiritual beings, and we can't help ourselves. So something will become ritual. Something will become religion, right? And so what this, and by the way, that quote wasn't recent, 1950s. That quote was 70 years ago. Nothing's changed, right? It's still what what makes us, our identity, our status, and so forth, it would seem. And I think that's what drives it at the heart of the heart of it here. And that is, what is the root? And the answer is pride. I think if the, and, and a lot of the church fathers and mothers would say that that's primarily the root of most of these sins on the list, but it's certainly not less than for avarice or greed. How so? Well, at its core, pride is self-assurance. And nothing will tempt you to being self-assured like money. And so let me, let me just tell you my story here real quickly, just, or something about it here. When I get married to Kirsten, she's serving upstairs with the kids right now. Uh, but uh, when I got married 22 years ago, uh, we had $100 in our bank account. So we came back for a honeymoon, and it was tight, okay? And, and so a lot of you probably know exactly what that's like. I mean, it was tight for a while, you know, and, and uh, she wasn't working yet. We just got married, and she was, uh, she was also trained as a counselor, and she was making pennies on the dollar, that sort of thing. And I wasn't making a whole lot, but as it was tight. But as years have gone by, things have changed. We've been able to invest in our retirement accounts and things like that along the way. And, uh, of course, we have kids now, but still we're provided for in ways. So our, our, uh, our, you know, our account's not quite as tight as it was all those years, of, years ago. And so what happens is when I see money infused into my bank account, I'm not kidding when I say I feel a sense of relaxation. Suddenly, I feel, okay, I've got this. And, the, and there's this correlation. The more money I have in my savings account, or even my checking account, doesn't matter. The more money that's there, the more I think I've got this. And I'm here to tell you, the less I think about God. 
Okay, truth, you're pastor. Truth, I'm telling you the truth on that. The less I think about God, because why? Everything that I have in my account is gift. Everything. I, I, yes, I, I went to work. I'm pastoring. Yes, but, but the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand and ten thousand hills, um, he provided that for me. And everything that has come in, literally sometimes as a gift from family or from other people or from my, the work that I do, it's all gift. And I'm a steward. I, I, I'm a manager of, of God's economy or part of God's economy, our, our family's economy. And so he's given me those gifts as a way to leverage for his kingdom. But I don't think that way. And so when money comes into my account, all I can think about is, okay, we're going to be good. We're going to be okay. That's self-assurance. And the core of that is pride. It's like, I don't want to be dependent on someone else. That's the core of pride. See, Genesis 3 is about that. In Genesis 3, remember what the evil one does. The evil one says, look, you don't have to, uh, uh, you know, have something, uh, uh, what's the word here? It's like, uh, kept from you. Uh, you uh, like, you can have it all. And that's what greed does. Greed says acquisition, have as much as you can and go for everything you can. And when someone tells you you can't have it, you can. And so that's how our economy works. That's how our, our hearts work. There's a sense of pride or, or self-assurance here. And what does Jesus say towards the very end there? Future trust. He said, you, this world has nothing. A hundredfold. You give up today, it's, it's going to come back to you a hundredfold. You talk about investment. I mean, who, who among us knowing that we can make an investment into the stock market and have a hundredfold return, wouldn't do it in a heartbeat. And that's what he's saying. You invest in my kingdom, man, wait till you see what's coming. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, okay? I've looked at this passage. I have no idea exactly what that means, right? But in the new heavens and new earth, it's going to be profound in its beauty in a way that, that the best of the best of the best of this world has nothing on what you're going to experience. It's a hundredfold. And so what does he say? Peter says, we've given it all up. Like we've done this. The very thing that you're talking about, Jesus. And Jesus says, you just wait. You have no idea how good it's going to be. What do we do with that here? Here's the question I want to ask you. It's sort of a test. And that's to look at your checkbook. Um, Again, don't look at the amounts that you give. That's not the point. But look at why you give attitude in the way that you give. What does it say about you? What does it reveal about you? Um, because because it's the same question that's that's asked of the rich young ruler that's asked of us who are rich young rulers in our own way. You see. And so if you're here and you're saying, okay, I'm sensing that this could be for me. All right, what do I do with that, Scott? And the answer is just what we've been saying every week in the series. Don't focus on the old attachment, but focus on a new attachment. What is that new attachment? It's generosity, and it's through Jesus Christ himself. If you've ever given, and we all have, right? And especially if you're giving to someone that you know, maybe it's a financial gift, maybe it's you're serving in some capacity with your talents or your time, and it serves them and it meets a need. What do you feel? You know what you feel. Joy. And you can't help yourself. You're made for it. That's why. And what happens in generosity is that generosity, God designs us for generosity so to connect us one to another, connect us both vertically and horizontally. That's the point of generosity. That's the point of joy. The joy is that it's more than the chemical sensation in our, in our brains, the serotonin. It's a lot more than that. It's, it's in the heart reminding us that all will be well in God's kingdom. 
And even if you're a non-Christian this morning, you can begin to experience that and taste of it. And, and you're on to something. I want to say, keep going after it. There's more joy to be found. But what, what is he saying here is he's like, look, there's, there's where the joy can be found. This is where the kingdom can be found. So how do we do that? How do we get that? And here's the answer. You cannot be generous yet in this way until you've been first been given to. There's a generosity that comes first, and it's the generosity of Jesus Christ himself. How so? Well, right after this, right after Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a wealthy man to go into heaven. Remember what happens there? Look at verse 26 with me. This is how they respond. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Now, I don't know if that struck you as kind of odd, but, but it, it strikes me as a bit odd in light of, you know, the scriptures and what Jesus has been teaching. Remember, he's toward the end of his three and a half years of ministry when this is happening. He's, he's about to go to Jerusalem to the crucifixion. And so they've had plenty of time to be with Jesus, and they are astonished. And here's why. Because it was believed back then, 2,000 years ago, that if you were deeply spiritual, remember who this guy is, he clearly is, is, is giving that vibe off, deeply spiritual, and you're wealthy, it was a sign of God's blessing upon your life and the kingdom had come. And so when this man comes, the 12 disciples are like, yes, 13 is here, and he's going to take care of us. Right, and this—he's gonna. I mean, this was a sign that the kingdom had come, and Jesus just told him basically, "No, give it all away." And he walks away crestfallen, and they are astonished because this wasn't what they thought salvation was, which sets them up to receive the salvation that is. How? Because of what happens in verse twenty-seven. Jesus looked at them and said, "With man, it is impossible, but not with God." For all things are possible with God. What do you mean, Scott? What does that mean? Mark chapter 14, verse 36 and following. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to the Father as he's praying, as he's preparing for the kiss of Judas, he prays to the Father, Father, with you all things are possible. Verse 36. Yet not my will, but yours. What was he doing? See, with God, all things are possible. What did Jesus have? Sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, he had the ultimate treasure. He had the relationship, the perfect relationship. He was God himself. What does he do? You see, he gives up his treasure to make it possible for salvation for you and me. That was his response to Peter. With God, with God, all things are possible. But they did not understand, they did not know, for another few days, they would not know what it took, what that meant. Don't you see? Jesus Christ gave up his treasure to make you his treasure. Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him, that joy of generosity, he endured the cross. This is what Jesus Christ has done. Ephesians 1, verse 7, 8, Paul says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of of his grace, which he lavished, lavished, liberal, prodigious upon us in all wisdom and insight. The good news is you cannot outgive God. You can test him on that. Try him, try him sometime, right? You cannot outgive him because he's given everything for you. So what should be our response to that be? 
Well, it, I call it a new practice. And I want to read to you just a, a little excerpt from a letter called the Letter of Diognetus. It was written in the second century. And someone evidently had asked Diognetus, we don't have that copy of that letter, but someone had asked Diognetus, what is a Christian? What does a Christian look like? Remember, this is a pagan society primarily. And so people were beginning to, to meet Christians for the first time. And, and so Diognetus was a Christian, and he wrote a long letter. But this is just one little section of the letter. He says, they live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. We share our table with all. We do not share our bed with all. Tim Keller, former pastor, redeemer in New York, his commentary, in essence, on this, he said this, In the ancient world, pagans were promiscuous with their bodies, but stingy with their money. Followers of Jesus were promiscuous with their money, but stingy with their bodies. And so here's, here's what I want, as your pastor, here's what I want to say to you. I want you to go out and be promiscuous. Right? So next cocktail party, I want you to say, my pastor says, I'm be, just clarify what you mean by that. Okay? But, but, but we're called to be promiscuous. But promiscuity is not the issue. The question is, where are we to be promiscuous? Where are we to be liberal? Where are we to be prodigious? Right? And so the, the calling for our hearts is to be prodigious. It is to be promiscuous with our possessions. And I, I know easier said than, than done, right? And that's the point of prayer and the power of prayer. is like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? And so what are those places in your life right now where as, as you've heard the word preached this morning, you've said, I think it could be here. Time, it's talent, it's treasure, but it could be here. Remember this, there's no guilt in this, right? Jesus took our shame. He took our guilt. And what he gave us in the place of that is joy. And so look to his generosity, friends. See his generosity and watch joy grow in your heart as you hold on to these things loosely that we have in this life. So may we be that church here in the city to love the city, to bless the city with our time and our talent and our treasure so that people might see the kingdom of God here in this great city we call Atlanta. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so liberal. We thank you that that you were so, so generous with your funds. It was your son, Jesus. You were the treasure. Um, And you've said that where our treasure is, there our heart will be as well. May it be, as we leave this place today, that we can truly say with integrity, you are our treasure. And we will hold nothing back because we want to buy the pearl of great price. We want to buy the treasure that will not corrode, that moth will not destroy. Jesus, your joy, the status, the identity, the well-being, the meaning, the worth, the value, the significance, the power, all the stuff that we cling to, that we long for, you have it, and you have it a hundredfold. And so, Lord, teach our hearts as we leave this place today that it truly is the great treasure. You truly are the great pleasure of our hearts. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, Savior, Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, let's continue in worship now through confession. And I want to give you a moment to take a lot of what Scott said and just ask the Spirit to reveal it to you. Just going to take a moment of silence. To where, where has your heart been possessed by your possessions? What is, 
what are you most tempted by in your life right now? And just give you a moment to think about what we need to bring to Jesus. And then we'll pray in a moment this prayer of confession together.